Hello and welcome to the Flower Pot podcast from the National Botanic Garden of Wales. My name's Bruce Langridge and my guest today is Abigail Lowe. Hello Abby. Hi Bruce. Abby is uh, going to talk to us about a PhD she's been doing over the last three years. Is it three years? Four. Four years, time shoots by. But Abby, you are, I think, one of our real great um, local success stories. And we're going to sort of talk about that as we go through, because you first came here over 10 years ago, didn't you? Gosh, yeah, I guess, yeah, 10, 11 years this summer. Yeah, so what... what so just tell me a little bit of the background. You were at school at the time, were you? Uh, yeah, I was in school. I was doing my... Which school? Uh, so Ascal Gwendraith, um, which is now Ascal Meister Gwendraith. But yeah, so... That's not far away from here, is it? Just no, so just in, in Dravach, about 10 minutes drive away. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was in school and really interested in biology. Um, and yeah, I wanted to do some work experience. But actually, the people that sort of persuaded me to do work experience here first were my grandparents. Um, who have sort of been supporters of the garden since it um, started. And they they said to me, oh, there's loads of, they do loads of science in the Botanic Garden. And of course, I didn't have any idea about it. And then, yeah, came and did a work work experience for a week and haven't looked back since. So 2011, uh, who who did you do that with? So um, the head of, the ex-head of science, Dr Natasha Devere, she was head of science at the time. Um, and yeah, I came to a week and around that time they were doing a lot of work on the Barcode Wales project. Um, so, um, making a DNA reference library of all of the native plants, um, in Wales. So collecting samples and DNA sequencing them so that we've got this big, um, reference that we can use. And which, let's not be modest about it, made Wales the first country in the whole world to have a DNA barcode of all its native flowering plants. And conifers, conifers. yeah, I always forget that bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you were collecting data for that as well, were you? I did a little bit of it, yeah. I won't, I didn't, you know, just did a, a couple of samples. But yeah, it was quite, it was interesting to sort of like get an idea into the, the that side of things, which I'd never really appreciated before, you know, like plant genetics. It wasn't really something that I knew much about. You know, at school you don't, you don't, uh, there's there's never a lot about plants in the syllabus to begin with, let alone, you know, that sort of detail. Um, so that was really interesting. And then now, of course, Barcode UK has been completed. So last year, um, the the rest of the reference library for the remainder plants, I think there was about 400 plants. Um, so the, so we've got the the whales, all the whales ones were DNA barcoded. Now the rest of the UK ones, so it's an extra foot. I'm going to ask you for a figure. Can you think of a figure, Abby? Well, I know that the the whales. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to talk about this. The for the whales, it was one thousand one hundred forty three plants, oh, and right. then I think it was about an extra four hundred plants to do the remainder of the UK because that's the good thing about whales, um, amongst many things. It's got the the habitats are so varied um, that a lot of the plants that we get in the rest of the UK are actually represented in Wales, so there wasn't a lot left to do um, for for the remainder. Just out of interest, I know we're going to get back into you in a minute, but the was the garden involved in, in uh, extending the UK barcode? Yeah, so that was all the same, sort of the same project. Um, so I was working with um, researchers. There was a collection of researchers uh, across the UK that helped with it, um, particularly uh, Edinburgh Botanic Garden um, helped out as well. Um, and yeah, I was just sort of trying to get 
get that reference library so that now we can take a bit of plant, any native plant um, in the UK, a, a bit of a seed, um, root, leaf, sequence the DNA and compare it to this reference library of known DNA sequences and tell you exactly what it is, even though you can't see the flower, you can't, you can't see any of the features that you would traditionally use to identify something. So that's how that's obviously been such a massive backbone to all of the work that we do here because we identify the pollen based on its DNA and we wouldn't be able to do that without knowing all of the information about plant DNA. Well, even in 2011, that must have been a bit of an eye-opening thing for you because you certainly, after that, you ended up going to university, didn't you? Yeah, so I went to university, did uh, studies biology at the University of Southampton. Then, yes, yeah, so I was quite interested in plants then, I would say, um, from my work experience here. Um, and then came back to do another week of work experience during sixth form uh, well during your, during your degree during my, sorry during my degree yeah that's right so how did that come up how did, how did that come up um so I'd always sort of stayed in touch with Natasha and yeah be, with the garden being on my doorstep at home like it was it was such a good opportunity to sort of always uh, keep a leg in like as they say um and yeah I just thought oh may as well go back see what's sort of happening now and if I can learn anything like more and then the opportunity to do a placement year came up. So between the second and third year of university, a lot of courses offer like a sandwich course, uh, which means that you go and work in industry for a whole year. And Southampton didn't actually offer this as part of their degree, uh, whereas a lot of universities do, and you end up doing a four-year course then. But yeah, the opportunity came up to to do a placement here, and I thought I couldn't say no to that sort of opportunity. So I deferred my final year came to live at home for a year worked here and then yeah that was that was sort of the the time that I gained the sort of the most experience then doing the lab work and um setting up the the pilot project for what became um Laura Dr Laura Jones's um project on sampling honey from the hives and um identifying the pollen in the honey um, we we sort of started that project in that year. When was that then, Abby? So that would have been... That was 2014-2015, yeah. Okay, and uh, who did you do your industrial year placement with? So it was I was just at, with the Botanic Garden um, as the organisation. There were other students on with you. Though. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, so it was Jake Mosscrop and Tegan Gilmore. Um, yeah, so that was. We've a... both gone into gone on to careers in botany. Am I right? So yeah, Jake is doing a PhD now. He's just coming to the end of his. Um, he's looking at crop pollination of field beans and looking at how to make it more efficient. I think with bumblebees, and I'm not actually sure what Tegan's doing at the moment, but she definitely has worked. Yeah, so she's she's worked. She was working with Immorsgate, the seed suppliers at one yes, point. Yes, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we definitely have. We've all sort of stayed in in the in the industry, which hap- tends to happen quite often, I think. And every, every year we have industrial placement students, and so we've been doing that clearly for probably eight, nine, ten years now. And uh, do you want to just say a little bit about that as well? Because we've got two students right now worth mentioning. Yeah, so at the moment, yeah, we've got Gabriel and Ellen. Gabriel's from Bath University and Ellen's from Exeter University. And yeah, so they come and they do their 10 or 12 month placement with us. And yeah, it's, it's really beneficial for them in terms of getting to um, do research on the ground and learning loads of new skills and things like that. But it's also really beneficial for us because they they just extra 
you know we're, we're a really small department so you know having extra help to be able to do the work is invaluable really um so we help to sort of train them up um they do a bit of field work a bit of lab work they tend to do more of what they're interested in which is quite good i think about our placements that some yeah. in some placements you tend to you know you don't get as much choice or flexibility but with with us we 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 try and follow like what people are interested in so the placement students have ended up doing projects which have been so varied be- between each other and that's just dependent on what we've got going on at the time but also like what they're interested in and i really like it when you see the students who come here and they take an, an interest in something they can then develop that interest and you can see their enthusiasm bubbling over and how they're learning more and more about it and how you can see it's going to affect the rest of their life it's a really positive experience as far as I can tell from here. Yeah, definitely. We've we've had, yeah, so the, as soon as you say that, I think of like last year, our one of our placement students, Katie, she decided she was doing the moth trapping with yeah. the conservation volunteers. And yeah, just seeing every week, you know, finding new species and recording them and just, yeah, something that you wouldn't, I think she'd done a bit of moth trapping before, but being able to do something kind of consistently and like developing that interest, yeah, is, is really cool. And you've got interviews coming up next month, haven't you? So we're going to be continuing this for next year? Yes, so we will. Yeah, we've just put the advert out actually yesterday. So we will be recruiting for two placement students um, for next year. So they start in July, I think, and then they'll be with us for a year. Okay, staying in the local farmhouses around the garden. Yeah, okay. so we've got yeah a local farm um, that the students live in for a year. Um, so yeah, very sort of that's one thing that we we try and make clear when we do the interviews is um, it's it, it's quite rural, so it's, it's a culture shock, isn't it? It's very different yeah, yeah. for some of the students who have um, you know are in these the, the cities for university and then having to come, but everyone's everyone's been fine. It's it's something different, isn't it? It's an experience. Yeah, very very. Okay, well, back to you again, Abby. So you kind of, you've, you've finished your degree and you thought, what do I do next? Yeah, there was a lot of that. I think <laughs> anybody that finishes their degree can kind of um, relate to that. that at, at the end of university, you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And that kind of went back and forth for a, a very long time. But there was always the understanding with Natasha that if any of us wanted to pursue a PhD, that we would be able to kind of, that there would be avenues that we could explore in terms of like funding. So there was always that that thing from Natasha of, oh, come back, do a PhD, come on, like, you know you want to. But to me, the idea of a PhD was always just like this massive, great, big, scary thing that mm. I would never be able to do. And to be honest, I definitely did feel like that even a few months ago. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think I just thought about it. And in the end, I just thought, oh, well, what have I got? Like, I thought it's really interesting, really passionate about about it so we we decided to yeah give it a go and put in to to get some funding from CAS which is um knowledge economy skills scholarship um which is an EU funded project and that CAS is like really unique in terms of how the funding works so a lot of PhDs are funded by these sort of grants which are sort of like UKRI or BBSRC which are big sort of science bodies and and they're granted to the universities Um, but CAS is quite unique in the fact that the PhDs that it funds are they they, they're trying to get the PhD students to be more like well-rounded in their skills so Mm -hmm. all of the CAS PhDs are partnered with an organization so although you're registered with a university you you have a company partner then and so 
for the majority of CAS students, you'd still be based at the university and you do some time at the company. Um, but it just so happened that obviously because I'm local here, the Botanic Garden is an amazing study site. It made total sense to do actually do the research here. So my partner university was Bangor, but I was always based here. So that was kind of quite unique in the sort of experience. Now, before you did that, it wasn't an overnight funding thing. So you had to sort of kick your heels and keep make a living in between that. So tell us how you did that. Yeah, so um, there was it was a year where we were put, putting in the funding bid for the following year. And um, we, yeah, as you said, I had to, had to earn some money. So I decided to take a job in the Botanic Garden in the restaurant, um, which was, yeah, really interesting. Um, and then... After a few months, I then moved diff- moved departments to visitor services, so the gatehouse um, or the, the kind of front desk. And then, yeah, I was there. Um, so I was there from about February to March 2017 to up until I started my PhD then, December 2017, which, yeah, I, I actually did really, really like working there because you, you got to speak to the visitors like day to day and just yeah it was it you know don't get me wrong anything which is customer facing can be really stressful when we've got queues coming out the doors and and things like that but it was really like rewarding and it was quite nice as well because sometimes you drive people up in the buggies so we have volunteers doing that but sometimes the staff would end up you know helping out and people would ask, oh, what's in that building up there? Um, pointing to the science building, which is perched on top of the hill, which a lot of people don't know what goes on. Well, we I think we're getting the message across better than we sort of ever have. But it's always a bit of a struggle, I think, to um, to get people to, to know what's happening. Um, and then, yeah, I would end up then... I was the perfect person then to tell them about... You're quite chatty, aren't you, Abby? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can talk yeah. for Wales. That's great. And which, did you prefer the restaurant or the gatehouse? That's a bit of an unfair question. Uh, I see, but I'm going on. I'm going to give you. I would say the gatehouse. Yeah, yeah. the restaurant is, but like it, it gets too busy, you know. Um, and I think the gatehouse is, is yeah, bit bit easier to. to were, were you on the front on the tills, or were you doing? Are you preparing food? Oh, on the or not? Yeah, on the <laughs> on the tills. Yeah, and serving serving food and on the tills. Yeah, and making coffees and things like that. And did you ever get stuck in there washing dishes and things like that? Yeah, we had, yeah, <laughs> wash dishes. Yeah, I've done it all, yeah. Three departments in this place, yeah. That's great. And when you went down to the gatehouse, presumably you would have seen uh, all the different sort of uh, people who came through and probably get to see some people who kept coming through again. Probably. Yeah, that was one of the like, really nice things. So you get to know the members really well, um, yeah. which is something I do miss because I don't really know the mem- you know, apart from the ones who have always been members. I don't get to interact with them as much. Um anymore and yeah our members are so like we value them so much um don't we like the way they support us and yeah Yeah. they they are encouraging and yeah they they just want to see the garden do good i find so yeah that was really that was that was really good and also i get to see my grandparents when they come in because now they just tell me a few days later oh we were up the garden the other day (laughs) i think well you didn't tell me i could have gone for a coffee with you (laughs) oh that's lovely but then uh then you got your funding so you started, well, let's let's start talking about what your PhD is in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as I sort of um, touched on, that my PhD is focused on, was focused on um, identifying the pollen on 
bumblebees, solitary bees, honeybees and hoverflies um, using the um, DNA barcoding methods. Now, this has come on the back of Dr Laura Jones, who we did a podcast with earlier, her work on honeybees. So it's a, it's a, is, is it fair to say it's a complementary? It's a sister project, yeah, yeah. is how we say it. Yeah, so I had um, one bit of my PhD was getting the pollen off the bodies of the insects, but another one of my chapters was carrying on with the honey sampling. So still doing the monthly sampling um, of the honey and identifying the pollen inside the honey. So it's the two different methods then that I used. So you had to, um, I'm taking a punt here, but you probably weren't a specialist in hoverflies before you started because they're just, most people don't even know what a hoverfly is, do they? So we should just start on that basic. Yeah, yeah. So most people are probably, yeah, just aware of honeybees and maybe a bum, you know, a bumblebee as one thing. But in, in actuality, just the, the world of pollinators is so diverse and for example we've got 25 species of bumblebees in the UK um, only one species of honeybee over 250 species of solitary bee bees that kind of almost live on their own until they lay eggs and then they get yeah, yeah. so they they're deemed solitary because they don't have like in the in honeybees and bumblebees they have um like a social structure where you have a queen the queen is the only one that lays the eggs and then the female bees will um the workers they will then provide for the um the the rest of the colony they will get the food and rear the young whereas in solitary bees it's just a single female that um lays the eggs and provides the the food um so that's why they're solitary bees and then hoverflies uh yeah so in america they call them flower flies which is a bit more descriptive yeah well not more descriptive but to what they do we call them hoverflies because the way that they they fly so if you see you see them often where they sort of like they'll come to your eye level and then they'll sort of like zip back and forth yeah they've um, freaked me out a few times before they I, are yeah. really like sussing you out <laughs> whereas they fly so differently to to bees um and they visit flowers like bees to eat pollen and nectar um so they're they're, they're quite unique in in the sort of in families of flies and not not many you know, a lot of flies will visit flowers, but the hoverflies, they really particularly have more of a relationship with plants. Uh, and some of them lay their eggs on plants, um, specific plants, and then they, their larvae like develop in the stems or the bulbs. Um, so they have this really close relationship. But, and they kind of mimic the colours, don't they, of, uh, of other sort of bees and things? Yeah, so some of them look like wasps. They're like little black and yellow jobs, um, you know, not no fur at all. Um, well, they, they call them wasp mimics, but they're not very convincing once you know what to look for, maybe <laughs> to a bird. Um, and then some of them uh, mimic bumblebees, so they're really furry things, and they are more convincing, especially in flight. I've definitely seen... One, like, like, you know, there's a specific species called um, Volucella bombilans, and the Latin name for bumblebees is bombus, so that's where that oh, bombilans yeah. comes yeah. from. And that looks like a bumblebee, and I've definitely seen it on flowers before and thought, oh, it's just a bumblebee. You know, you get used to seeing things, like, really commonly, and you, you brush them off as, oh, you know, not so interested. And then you realise, actually, no, this is a this is a, the hoverfly, and you're like, that's pretty cool. Well, and how many different hoverflies are there? So hoverflies, I think I lose count because there's always this split in species and there's new ones coming up. But I think on last count, it was like 286 species in the UK. OK, so my, my simple maths here, Abby, is we're looking at all the different solitary bees, looking at all the different hoverflies and bumblebees. You've suddenly got about 500 different 
pollinating flying insects that for your survey clearly they're not all living here (laughs) (laughs) but but when you open the book up or whatever it is to identify them you need to know what most of them are that that's a hell of a hell of a challenge isn't it yeah so that that is really difficult Uh, obviously you can use dna to to identify a lot of them but we decided to um kind of stick to identifying things morphologically so that's just you using the the features that you can see um and some of them are easier than others as you said some of them though you do need to look under a microscope to see these these differences um and that's something yeah i think i've the skills that i've learned um in being able to identify them are yeah I, i didn't even know the differences between some of the you know common bumblebees you know before i started my phd Whereas now I would, you know, I wouldn't class myself as an expert, but I definitely have like a, a good knowledge. And on last count, I think we'd recorded something like 50 or 60 species of hoverfly on site here and yeah. about 40 species of, of bee, which is still, even though it sounds a lot, because um, obviously I, I say the total number of species that are you know in the UK but some of these are one for example one species of bumblebee the great yellow bumblebee is is confined to the outer hebrides now um so you're you're never going to get that in west <laughs> wales um yeah. so of of what is possible to record here i think we've done a, you know we we definitely got a good number but it's still not as many as i, I would hope so that's something now that the sort of immediate stress of the PhD is done. This summer, I'm I'm really want to sort of try and record more species in the garden. So, how do you go about that? I mean, if anyone else wants to take up an interest in this, uh, you can buy a book or something. But it's always overwhelming. So, you need someone to help you, do you? Yeah, definitely. So, I've had so much help from um, you know different people who are sort of skilled. Some of them academic, more academic, some of them who just have a, a passion and, you know, uh, keen recorders. And there's also some like, really helpful Facebook groups. Um, so the UK Bees, Wasps and Ants group on Facebook, that's the sort of group where you can take a photo of, you know, things in your garden, hopefully bees, but, you know, sometimes you get we get photos on there of flies, people, as I said, not knowing the difference yeah. and posting a photo and the people on there are so helpful they'll say what it is um kind of and that's just a whole there's so much information on there and there's there's been some really helpful people on there and same with the hoverflies then there's a group called UK hoverflies and both of these groups then will encourage you to record everything you see um so of course we need to know in order for us to monitor what any species is doing we need to be able to tell how abundant they are where they're distributed and only then if we're taking long-term records can we um, start to see any sort of trend or change changes so it's really important that we record everything that we see and even the common stuff because they're usually the best indicators of any change so yeah usually i would recommend like i record and that's just a website online the i use i record yeah it's so good you just put in you know once if you put in um what you think it is if if you're more experienced you might not need a photo but often they recommend putting photo with it or if somebody's helped you to get that identification you put in who's helped you and then team of experts then will go through those and verify the records but yeah I love like I've really found interest the last couple of years in wildlife recording so I I really want to like 
do more in the garden and, and yeah, it becomes a bit of a bug. I've I've been caught out. Of just that. It's, obsessed. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it's everywhere great. I go, my friend, like I'll be on a walk with my friends, and I'm like just stopping, typing something in my phone. They're like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Nothing." <laughs> 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 they just like write the grid reference down, write what it is, and then yeah, it's great. It's so easy. Like it's easier to do with plants than uh, most things that fly. But yeah, once you get the bug, as you said, you can't stop. You're just recording everything. Could you ever recognise them by their buzz? There are... I can't, I'm not going to lie, but also that could be because I'm partially deaf. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but there, there is um, there is a bumblebee, uh, particularly the shrill carder bee. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's which, the one that's down in Pembrokeshire. Or, or yeah, so it's in, in yeah. Pembrokeshire, um, yeah. and it's particularly known for um, being on the Gwent levels. Um, so it's one of the UK's rarest bumblebees, actually, but Wales is one of its strongholds. So, it, Well, Wales has its strongholds, so Pembrokeshire... Um, I think Castle Martin, could be wrong, in Port Alba around Kenfig and then um, on the Gwent levels. Um, and that has like a distinctive, like high-pitched buzz. Um, yeah. So that's why they're called the, the Shrill Cardaby. But yeah, some of the, I, I don't know, maybe more people like people who really, really know their stuff, like maybe Stephen Falk or someone who's sort of like the renowned um, yeah. expert in the UK. Who gave you some personal training. Yeah, you? so yeah. I went on a course um, with Stephen. Um, I've also been on another course by uh, Ian Cheeseborough. So these are people who have been studying um, these things for, you know, they're, they're very experienced and they teach you how to identify things, uh, what you're looking for, the, you know, some of the features that you've got to look for on these bees are so, so small that you've got to know exactly what you're you're looking for. So, yeah, without their help, you know, I, I would have, it's much, much harder, I would have been much slower. Also, Andrew Lucas, Dr. Andrew Lucas, who did his PhD, also similar to me, mm. he identified pollen on the bodies of hoverflies. He helped me um, learn how to identify different hoverflies when I first started, so... That was that was really good. Liam Olds of Bug Life, um, who does all the work on the colliery spoils oh, yeah. um, in South Wales, he has been invaluable as well. And and that's the really good thing about like the the network of people that work in in pollinators. Really, everyone is is wanting to help you and and share their knowledge. And it's not really like it's not one of those. I think some professions and some areas of science people can be quite secretive on sort mm. of like their knowledge but everyone's like really care, keen to share um and and help everybody else learn that's lovely so you but you've also had as well you've had help of other people on site here as well haven't you yeah definitely so um as part of um my phd we uh, did a floral survey of all of the plants which were in flower every month um in the garden from march March, April to September. And of course, the garden is what, 568 acres. And something like some that. of the most diverse planting in the whole of yeah, Wales as well. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty impossible for one person to go out and record every single plant in flower because it would probably take <laughs> you most of all of the day. Well, it would take you every day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the team team of conservation volunteers who come every week um, and they do all sorts um, in the garden um, to do with conservation. They do like tree. Um, monitoring and they they put camera traps out. Um, or everywhere they come and they're all they recording something all everywhere. Yeah, probably. So yeah, they they were really helpful and yeah, we we would get out and every so each volunteer 
or like a pair of volunteers would have an area in the garden that they would do every single month so they would really get to know that area then and then with this information then of being able to look at not only what plants the pollinators are using in this environment but compare that compare what they're using to what's available because of yeah. course it's only half the picture really to say are oh, they using xyz are they only using xyz because that's all that's available to them or are they they choosing those over all of the other things that we have in the garden um so that's been yeah really interesting to look for so you you gathered data over a couple of years yeah so two years yeah 2018 and 2019 were my um key seasons okay and then when when all that data came in you then had to do something with that data, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's the least fun bit, no. Um, yeah, so the doing all the stats and analysing the data, yeah, that takes a lot longer, I think, than people sort of, like, appreciate. Um, and also the thing that we we tend to skim over as well is that we, we go out, um, collect the data. So in my case, go and, and collect the pollinators, get the pollen off their bodies, but that's not your data then. At that point, you've got to sequence the dna so in the lab then we're talking in another few weeks of work where you're we're talking about the labs actually in this science center that we're sat in there. yeah so yeah, we've yeah. got two molecular labs um at the garden um which we use so yeah in there then we do all the dna extraction amplification and then we'd send the samples off for sequencing that can take four to six weeks then where do you send back. that off to we send it to liverpool genomic center then because they've got a sequencer and then they send us back all of the the raw files then so that's the so without getting too in depth dna is made up of um four base bases so mm. four different letters and then you you get the files which have the sequence of those four letters and that's what helps you to identify things and we just get all these files back and we have to some some way and somehow make sense of this um, and that takes you know quite a long time then to 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 sort through that data and compare it to the reference libraries that I was talking about before. And that only then have you got your data. And then you start to ask your questions. Okay, so do bumblebees differ to honeybees? Do, you know, those yeah. those then are, are when you're starting to analyse that data. And then you've got to write it all up. Which has taken you an awful long time. <laughs> <laughs> you always look Thanks, like Bruce. You, you always look like yourself despairing doing that. Yeah. But what I'd love to know is... is what you found out? Yeah, so found out like a lot of interesting things really. So yeah, the main sort of thing, well, more information will be hopefully soon. So I'm hoping that my first paper of my PhD will be published imminently, hopefully. Um, but yeah, in that, um, I've used the results to create a recommendation list um, of plants that people can put in their gardens um, to, to help support pollinators. But sort of the main main take home really was that bees and hawflies do forage differently um yeah. so they use different plants um found that the bees are more likely to use things like the thistles um which have got the longer crawlers so the tube with the flower so their long tongue then helps them to access the nectar hoverflies tend to use more of the open flowers so things like the angelica and the hogweed the hoverflies love and you will see that in summer if you see some hogweed there'll just be loads of hoverflies on it yeah yeah uh, you don't tend to see the bees on it but the hoverflies do use the thistles but they use them much less than the the bees 
Um, they both absolutely love Bramble, which is, we you know, we're starting to be really preaching to the choir here, mm-hmm. I think, because all of the work that we do, it always comes out as the top plant. You know, Bramble is, is really the thing oh. that they, they absolutely love. Is, is one of the reasons that, Abby, is that Bramble produce flowers all through the season as well, don't they? Yeah, so I think it's it's a, probably a combination of things. So it has a really long flowering time. Um, it also produces a lot of nectar, uh, good quality nectar. And it also, I think, is the, the pollen is a really, um, you know, nutritionally good. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's it's good for, for protein. Um, so I think it's just a combination of it. And we do have a lot of it in the landscape, although that is not probably the main reason that they choose it. It's probably just a combination of... Um, of of things, I mean, apart from the the the, the long tongue things and the short tongue things, are there any other um, horticultural plants or wildflowers that that have shown up in your research? Yeah, Lord, so I'm trying to think now. Uh, yeah, so those are the main differences. But yeah, things like the another thing which was really interesting from that paper um, is that. The, although throughout the year the pollinators tend to use native and neonative plants most often, so you know the, the kind of hedgerow and woodland grassland species, things that just grow wild around. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah the, the you know the more wild things, they do use the horticultural, so the more garden plants um, at low levels throughout the year, but yeah. they're particularly important at the end of the year, and that is because obviously. You know, when you get to like September, there's a lot of the native plants have ceased flowering, but the things that are still flowering but in October yeah. are things like your rubecchias, uh, heleniums, coreopsis, bidens, the, the sort of daisy family plants, which provide so much colour. They're also, yeah, extending the season and that could be, you know, that's helpful for a lot of reasons really um you know with global warming and things like that maybe yeah. everything's shifting a little bit so it's they are really important so it's although native and native plants are, are you know the make up the bulk of the diet we mustn't underestimate like the importance of the garden plants as well yeah that's a message we've, we've got from this botanic garden isn't it that uh, your gardens are, are such crucial habitats for our bi- native biodiversity yeah so i always every every time i do a talk i always start with saying how important gardens are and that the area of gardens in the uk is actually the total area of combined gardens in the uk is actually greater than the total area of nature reserves but we put so much importance and you know everyone thinks our oh, nature reserves so pre-, you know i'm not not saying that they shouldn't but yeah, yeah, we put yeah, yeah. a lot of protection on the nature reserves but we don't think about our gardens half as much and you know this problem that we've got with people astroturfing their lawns and um you know just not really seeing that your garden can be its own little nature reserve and it doesn't need to be massive it can be the smallest of gardens as as long as you're just letting some of it grow wild you know you've got a a bit of you've got something throughout the season so as as long as you've got food for the pollinators because some of them fly really early some of them are spring flying some of them are really late you know it's 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 really helpful to just make sure that there's something in your garden all year round and yeah, that that's the thing that can then help the most, and I I don't think people like realize how much um, help, how much good they they can do just in their in their back garden. Can you distinguish the cultivars from the the more uh, the more simple uh, species breeds of, of horticulture, and does that matter in uh, in how you want to plan your garden? 
So with the DNA, we can't identify that low down. No, we we usually identify. Um, sometimes we can identify species, but often or not, um, we tend to do quite a conservative approach where we just um, do genera. So that's sort of like your willow from your cherry rather than right. your different species of of cherry um, par. But what we the thing that we try and promote is that. It doesn't. If the horticultural variety and the native variety, you know, not variety, but if the the horticultural species and the native species are functionally similar and ecologically similar, i.e., they sort of they look the same, they are in the same habitat, they flower at the same time. There's if if you don't think that there's any reason that they should be less rewarding, for example, double-headed roses. They, they are useless in terms of pollinators because they can't get in, they can't access the... Because there's too much petals to too, get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you wouldn't compare a horticultural rose like that and, and a, a native field rose. Um, but, for example, some of the cherries, some of the horticultural cherries and the wild cherries, they probably are just as important. So having a non-native cherry in your back garden, I wouldn't, you know, I, I think that... That and we don't. There's a lot that we don't know. So I think there has been some research um, that some horticultural varieties of of plants do produce less nectar, and maybe they have less um, rewarding pollen. But there's a lot that we don't know really. Um, and so I think having a good mix of native and and um, non-native plants in your garden to make sure that you're providing something and you're also extending the the season is good. But yeah, we we've got a lot of information actually on our website um, about best plants for spring summer and autumn um that that people can look at which hopefully is will they'll find helpful okay so so what comes next with that research is there a next there's always a next yeah yeah, Yeah, yeah. there's so many different things that that we could do um so a lot of the so obviously i've been looking at bumblebees honeybees sultry bees and hoverflies but unfortunately i i didn't actually get to sample that many solitary bees as I'd hoped because they're they're a lot harder to find and to catch well especially when you have to get the um you have to catch the insect without contaminating everything with pollen um and so usually the method that you would do is you would sweep net um and you would just go around like waving your net and you'd catch whatever got into the net but when you're working with pollen DNA, you can't do that because, of course, you just get pollen everywhere. <laughs> um, so that it was easier to to catch bumblebees without getting any contamination, as it was the solitary bees. Also, it's, you can hear you can hear hoverflies and and bumblebees a lot easier than you can some of the solitary bees. They're so small. So yeah, further work would be kind of focusing more in on the solitary bees. Looking at there's some research which has looked at more specifically in like the bee hotels so as i said yeah. the solitary bees will go and they'll provide the they'll um lay an egg and then they'll go and um and forage pollen and and bring it back and you can do dna metabarking of the pollen in the nests um oh. so it's instead of getting that it's an easier way really then of because the pollen's right there you don't have to find them in the feet in a massive field you've if you've got a bee hotel um, you can get the pollen directly from from there and sequence um, these the DNA. These hotels, just worth saying. I mean, they, they're, just, they're a slightly modern thing, but they and, and some people say they work, and some people say they don't. But I know, I've, I know people swear blind that they're working really well. So basically, little um, 
human constructs with little tubes, wooden tubes, aren't they, into big another big tube, and they're all piled together to make a big. So if it's like high rise flat or something. Yeah, yeah. So some of these solitary bees, as I said, a lot of them, most of them in in the UK, nest in the ground. So they'll just make their own little tunnel, um, and they'll nest in there. But some of them are aerial nesters, so that means they nest above the ground, and in sort of you know in nature that would be in holes in brick in your walls in um plant stems anywhere really which is like this long kind of um think of like a straw a bit bigger than a straw but you know this long chamber where they can lay egg after egg after egg and yeah the bee hotels they i think they're great to be honest yeah there's there's some things about you know whether whether they're good whether they're bad but i think they're they're really good to to engage with people and you can see them as well so the, the type of things that would use the bee hotels are leaf cutters so they um those bees they will line their nests with leaves if you have a garden and you're very fond of your roses you might have seen some very perfectly circular it's amazing cuts out of cuts the leaves yeah. yeah those are your leaf cutters taking them to line their nests and then you've also got mason bees that use mud uh, to line their nests. So those are the type of bees that you can see. And and when they've finished, um, when they've filled the whole hole, filled the whole hole, <laughs> filled filled yeah. the entire chamber at the front, they will cap it. And if it's with leaf material, you can tell. If it's with mud or some something like that, you 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 can tell. And and it's quite good because people that that's again something you get a bit obsessed with. You put it in your garden, probably beginning of spring march time and then you just watch it as the season sort of progresses and your mason bees would tend to to fill it earlier in the season and the leaf cutters at at the end of the season so yeah you can watch it and and it is amazing you just see these bees they just fly back and forth back and forth and they just this this they're so hard at work uh, last year i i I, uh, thomas and katie the students last year have spotted the um uh solitary bees near the waterfall where we've been doing a lot of restoration work that restoration work had done a lot of clearance and it left loads of mud and so it's just full of solitary bees it's just amazing and what i thought what was even more amazing is the day after they saw all the solitary bees appear the cuckoo bee had appeared to do its devious thing <laughs> of laying its eggs in their nest i thought how on earth do you how does nature coordinate like that i just don't get it yeah i th- yeah that bank by the waterfall i remember when i first walked up there and this was before sort of like springtime had, had started and i thought i was eyeing it up and down i was thinking this is going to be really good for bees and i have i did spend quite a bit of time up there like last year although now it's so far from the build there's, there's only so far i can stretch my lunch break <laughs> so by the time i get to the waterfall you can't spend that long by the time you have to get back so yeah watching the bees so those would be the mining bees then that are going into and if there's a sunny bit of um of mud they they'll be going in and out of there and it can be like buzzing with activity and I've I've been up there before like watching things and people have asked me oh what are you doing and you explain and they say oh, I didn't and I would never would have thought that they were bees because they're so small yeah. and they're just darting around but yeah if you see something like flying around a hole uh, like in in a wall it, it is you know more than likely going to be a bee so abby you're with your phd you're awaiting your viva now am i right so it's a little bit of a nervous wait isn't it yeah so my vibe i don't think i'm not gonna tell you the exact date but it's in the next (laughs) (laughs) i'll jinx myself it's in the next few weeks yeah so the viva then is the oral examination for the the phd where you sit down 
well now unfortunately it's all over zoom um <laughs> so you sit down um, opposite a screen um and you have um your committee so you have a, an internal examiner from your university um your chair who you know just make sure everything run smoothly and an external examiner then that you um you nominate then to to come in and they just well I say just it, it can be like four it can be like three four hours long um and you you t- they they've gone they've been marking it for you know a few weeks and they go through it and they they question you about it basically and and it's it's to justify it it's to answer questions it's to 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 talk about it and yeah it's after that point then that you um become a doctor and you get your your title so it could be after your zoom meeting you become dr abigail Lowe yeah. after the zoom meeting yeah the long time coming isn't it <laughs> oh i hope it's soon Abby. and and that from there uh, you, I know you've got sort of ideas for new studies that could be done here in the Botanic Garden because you and Laura will be working together with Kevin in the future mm-hmm. and hopefully um, developing all this knowledge you've got because you've made the National Botanic Garden of Wales a centre of excellence, I think, in DNA barcoding. Is that a fair thing to say, now? Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, definitely. And the, the barcoding and the pollinators, like, together, there's, you know, there's not that many people still that are sort of doing this work so the, the fact that we're able to do this like in a little corner of west wales is is pretty cool you know we're not attached to a university like we are you know almost a research institution in our own right sort of thing and that might be blowing our own trumpet but i think that's fair to say like the work that um that natasha has done to build up this this um this science department is is amazing and yeah, yeah putting whales on the world stage as we always say that's a uh, lots so, to come hopefully and maybe we'll have another chat next year to see how you're getting on over the summer well hopefully there'll be multiple papers will have be in <laughs> publication or be published that's the thing you do the phd and then you've got publish all the work oh, so cool. yeah oh, hopefully okay. lots to come that's a lot with that abby thank you very much it's been great chat thanks bruce